Episode 3 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 1.2, Military Introduction, or a brief discussion on military stuff as pertains to understanding War in the Book of Mormon. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this podcast, we will introduce basic concepts associated with military strategy and tactics, and concepts associated with ancient warfare all in the hopes of better understanding war in the Book of Mormon. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, let us begin. Without getting into too much detail, it is necessary to lay a brief groundwork on armed conflict and military-related issues to provide a common frame of reference for the rest of the podcast episodes. As this podcast is for the layperson and not military professionals, the terms used here are those devised by me to explain the key components of military operations and the necessary actions for military success and not necessarily based on current military doctrine. In some cases, these words will be familiar, but in others they may be unique to avoid an over-technical approach to the study at hand. I currently teach military history, and this is a topic that I find personally fascinating. I will try to connect some of the strategy with history, but rest assured that the point is to make the details in the Book of Mormon come alive and be useful. What is war, and why do I often use the phrase armed conflict? War is a commonly used English term in modern society. It connotes a supreme effort or struggle, and is often used in political language to denote the focusing of resources to fight a problem general to the nation. The war on poverty, or the war on drugs, are two such examples. Since I am recording this in 2020, the war against the COVID-19 virus is another example. Clearly, the use of war in such a fashion is not the use addressed here, though there are similarities, and that is why the word war can be used in these more general forms. War is a social endeavor. It cannot be accomplished by an individual, though some literary works and news reports feature one person's war on local government or similar stories, war requires the mobilization of a society. The people and resources from that society make a collective decision through reasoned discussion or emotional impulse to conduct acts of collective violence against another group. There are civil wars where a subset of a community chooses to commit collective violence against another subset of the community. There are interstate wars where large political entities struggle against each other. War can span a large spectrum in terms of size and effort, but typically a war is used much differently than war. War is a conceptual entity. We have a state or condition of war. The people go to war, but we also use the phrase to fight a war. The war we fight is a collection of efforts, movements, maneuvers, and possibly battles, though battles are not a requirement of war. 
War as a thing, rather than a concept, is large in nature. We do not talk of the War of Little Bighorn that happened in the modern state of Montana, USA, in June 1876. That was a battle. There was not a war at Trenton that took place in New Jersey, USA, and was led by then General George Washington in December 1776, though much of what we could define about the term war could be applied to Trenton and Little Bighorn. It is for this reason of confused use of terms that the preferred phrase here is armed conflict. Armed is added to separate the discussion from simply verbal conflict, though we will see that there is verbal armed conflict as well. The term war, with respect to the Book of Mormon, will be used to delineate large periods of conflict, or periods of conflict focused on specific groups, like the Zoramite War, the Amalekiahite War, the Gadianton Robber War, etc. I ask that you imagine conflict as a continuum or a spectrum across a line of events from smaller to larger. At the small end is verbal threat, then physical threat, intimidation or coercion, theft, murder, and then raid for theft, raid for pillage, narrow conquest, general conquest, and finally, genocidal conquest. This spectrum doesn't just have an increasing level of violence, but it also includes an increasing size of necessary organization. An individual, for example, can, while armed, verbally abuse someone, steal their property, or murder them, but that same individual, acting alone, cannot conquer a neighboring village. Such an action requires a collective organization. Internal groups can perform the same functions of individuals. Think about gangs, organized criminals, and secret combinations within societies. Though they can perform large-scale violence and damage, their actions, which remain internal to the larger community, must be viewed simply as collective forms of intimidation, violence, theft, and murder. Groups external to the communities they attack change the nature of the terminology slightly. They can perform all of the same violent tasks, but because they are viewed as outsiders, or view their victims as outsiders, the words change. They perform raids, activities designed to evince the same goals of theft and murder, but at a more organized and collectively planned level. The objective of a raid may be to simply acquire livestock. It may be to kidnap, which is the stealing or theft of a person. It may also be to exact revenge for perceived or real wrongs that result in the destruction of the targeted community. The attack on the city of Ammonihah in the Book of Alma, chapter 13, is such an action. To perform the greatest levels of destruction requires the greatest levels of organization, violence, and commitment. This can only be accomplished through the organs of states. The destruction of the Nephite nation described in the Book of Mormon, chapter 5 and 6, could only be accomplished by another state or state-like organization. The Gadianton robbers remaining as a secret combination could not successfully achieve such a result. It was necessary for the perversion of an entire state government to create such destruction. 
Only a state can mobilize the resources to support tens of thousands of fighters, warriors, soldiers in the field for multiple engagements and battles. For those who want to attach war to this continuum, those activities listed as narrow conquest, general conquest, and genocidal conquest on the right side of the imagined continuum are typically the objectives of war. But these podcast episodes discuss elements of each of the listed types of conflict, from the threats, confinements, and intimidation experienced by Nephi as performed by Laman and Lemuel while still in the Near Eastern wilderness, to the raids of early Lamanite tribes against early Nephite camps and villages, to the first attempted and successful raids by Lamanite war bands fought by Nephi's descendants, causing Mosiah to flee the land of Nephi, to the attempts of conquest defeated by Benjamin, Alma, and Moroni, and finally concluding with the complete destruction and genocide of the Nephite nation and followers of Christ. Armed conflict does not always exist within such a progressive continuum, but in the Book of Mormon there is a general pattern, as outlined from the left of the continuum to the right, Mormon used armed conflict in all of its forms and changes to explain and demonstrate the more important spiritual conflict of which we are all part. This continuum of armed conflict has a parallel continuum of physical and spiritual preparation and response. These are the most important lessons throughout this study. It is much more important to understand how to prevent the damages from armed and spiritual conflict than just to understand the different aspects of the continuum. For most people do not endure the crucible of armed conflict, but a different crucible of spiritual conflicts. Each listener can create their personal continuum of spiritual conflict that could include everything from bearing insults or offense to internet temptations to challenges of faith, to the loss of a child. There are also collective experiences that fall short of armed conflict, as religious persecution and intolerance fit somewhere on a listener's own continuum. It is a goal of this podcast to provide lessons and helps that each Book of Mormon reader can apply to their own set of challenges on their spiritual conflict continuum so that they can successfully pass through their own crucible and be those who are strengthened through the process rather than hardened against it. The Book of Mormon addresses conflict in a small cycle, a large cycle, and in a progressive continuum. The small cycle repeats continuously throughout the narrative, at times in less than a decade. This is the common and very familiar pride cycle that is taught in all Book of Mormon instruction, or the unity cycle explained in episode 1 of this podcast series. The larger cycle is the progression along the continuum of conflict until societal destruction, and then the progression begins again. This larger cycle occurs three times. One, with the destruction of the Nephite state and the fleeing of Mosiah to the north and his finding the land Zarahemla. Two, the destruction of the Nephite state following the murder of the chief judge and in close proximity the death of Jesus Christ. And three, at the end of Nephite civilization and the final battle at the hill Cumorah. These events are explained in the books of Omni, 3rd Nephi, and Mormon, respectively.
The following parts and episodes address this progression and the larger cycles represented therein. Along the path of these cycles there are numerous raids and battles, campaigns and wars. I identify something like 25 wars in the Nephite-Lamanite interaction recorded in the Book of Mormon from beginning to end. There are more than 40 campaigns and something like 174 separate battles, raids, or engagements. I will not list them all here as no one wants to hear a list of battles or wars read out, but I want to briefly address these terms and what they mean for the episodes to follow. War, campaign, battle, engagement. A war is sometimes defined in modern terms as a conflict between two opponents in a given area that inflicts 1,000 or more deaths a year. We don't have the details in the Book of Mormon record to make such a distinction clear. So the wars, as I divide them in the Book of Mormon, are conflicts between common opponents in a given area for a given time. Some wars are short, like the Amlicite War, that is recorded in Alma chapter 2. It seems to happen all within a single year. It consists of several discrete engagements or battles between the Nephites, led by the prophet, high priest, and chief judge Alma, and the Amlicites, led by Amlici, and then joined by the Lamanites. In this example of a war, we have battles and engagements but only fought over what seems to be a couple of days and over a relatively small and contiguous territory. A more complex example of war is the Amalekite War, which we read about in Alma chapters 46 to 62, and is fought over 14 years across almost the entirety of the Nephite lands and includes numerous battles that can be grouped into something like 11 campaigns. If the opponent changes, then it is probably a new war, though not always. If the places where it is fought changes, then it is probably a new war. If the purposes for the fighting change, then it is probably a new war. So a war is a combination of violent exchanges fought against a similar opponent in the same or connected area for similar purposes. An engagement is a loose term for the smallest kind of battle. When Ammon fights off Lamanites at the waters of Sebus, one man against something like a couple of dozen men, that probably isn't a battle. That is an engagement. A battle is a military engagement between two groups or forces or armies. The term army is used loosely in the Book of Mormon. Since we don't know what subordinate terms were given for organization, we will stick with armies. When two armies engage on a battlefield or at a city, that is a battle. When multiple battles are strung together to serve a larger purpose, that is a campaign. We will see campaigns in many of the large and well-described wars in the Book of Mormon. Wars at the top, common enemy, place, and purpose engagements at the bottom, small, and maybe with little purpose other than personal survival. Battles are in the middle. They can be small or very large, as we will see. Campaigns are a combination of battles for a common purpose. As the campaigns evolve and the level of Nephite dissenters increase, a transformation of complexity in warfare is observable. 
Initially, most engagements and battles are open field and tend to be heroic in nature. This means that leaders strive to fight leaders and the conflict is fought by local recruits and led by recruited families or tribal leaders. As the story progresses, this model changes to include more organizations, a military bureaucracy with permanent or semi-permanent leadership, and national-level mobilization for extended periods of time. The battles are typically part of larger campaigns and tend to seek the maintenance of land and possession of cities. It is in this later stage that Mormon places his greatest emphasis on the preparation of the fortifications and the description of the few decisive open field battles. Complexity comes in three areas. Operations, organization, and logistics. Some of this is difficult to see in the Book of Mormon descriptions, though it is still there. When we get our first battle stories in the Book of Mosiah, the armies essentially line up and face each other in something like an open field. A few years later, the Xenophytes have forces waiting in ambush in both the woods and the fields. To execute such an attack requires control measures so that each force attacks at a time that does not isolate it and yet takes advantage of the other force's action. This also requires an increase in planning and orders communication. This is complexity in operations and organization as there are different forces with different tasks and purposes and the need to command and control in different ways and through different manners to ensure the accomplishment of a common purpose at a common time and place. Complexity of logistics comes as the directing authority has to support forces in different places at the same time. This is observable in the record with respect to the Amalekiahite War, where the Nephite governor needs to provide support to three separate campaigns occurring in near simultaneity. All of this said, it is important to note that we never see a similar complexity to what is observable in comparable Near Eastern armies like the Neo-Babylonian army at the time of Nephi's departure from Jerusalem or the historically contemporary Roman army. In the Book of Mormon, there is no designated engineering corps, nor does there seem to be a logistics corps. There is no cavalry whatsoever, and there is no artillery. Wars and battles are what was fought and complexity increased across time. How did the leaders put all of this together into a coherent strategy? There are a variety of definitions of strategy and tactics. A general concept might lead one to think that strategy is the way wars are fought and tactics govern the conduct of engagements and battles. This is not accurate and leads one to think that wars require planning and strategy, and battles do not exhibit any strategy, but only consist of tactics. I will continue my explanation of strategy after a brief digression. A common word used in the Book of Mormon is the word stratagem. In the 1828 Webster's American Dictionary of the English Language, stratagem is defined as, quote, an artifice, particularly in war, a plan or scheme for deceiving an enemy, close quote. Another definition is, quote, any artifice, a trick by which some advantage is intended to be obtained, close quote. 
I want to emphasize that stratagem, in most uses in the Book of Mormon, is a small strategy, a kind of trick, a way to solve a particular problem at a particular time. In some cases, stratagem may be almost a complete replacement for the word strategy, as we will see in the Battle of Manti. Now, back to the main discussion. Strategy is simply a way to solve a problem. It is the plan for answering a dilemma at some level of conflict. For the purposes of this discussion, there are five levels of conflict, and therefore five levels of strategy that exist in the modern world. For the discussion of the Book of Mormon, we will deal only with four of these levels. The five are technical, tactical, operational, theater, and grand. For this podcast, we will combine theater and grand into a single category. Technical is a strategy of one fighter against another, how fighters or soldiers conduct themselves in war. Tactical is how one organization fights another. It consists of the control and changing of formations for the purposes of defeating the enemy in contact. Operational strategy consists of what an army does outside of immediate contact with the enemy. It is the positioning of forces and the conduct of movement to ensure that forces are ready and prepared to win the present and future tactical strategy. Oftentimes, this is dominated by a discussion of logistics, getting the right people and things to the right places at the right times. The importance of logistics continues at the theater-slash-grand-strategy level, but this level also deals with aspects of diplomacy, economics and trade, propaganda and communication, and all other things that can influence war at the nation or state level. I want to give an example of each from the Book of Mormon record so that the listener can put these in a proper context. The strategy used by Ammon at the waters of Cebus in Alma 17, where he fought with sling and sword, and the strategy used by Moroni in Alma 43 to prepare each soldier with shields for personal protection, are examples of technical strategy. The strategy used by Zenith in Mosiah 10, as he places men in ranks based off of age, or by Limhi and Gideon in Mosiah 20 as they place forces in the field and in the forest are examples of tactical strategy. The strategy used by Amalekiah in Alma 51 as he takes city after city along the eastern coast is an example of a campaign and demonstrates operational strategy. When Amalekiah combines campaigns of insurrection amongst the kingmen with a campaign in the east and a subsequent campaign in the west in the same part of the Book of Alma is theater or grand strategy. The overall Lamanite strategy that seems to focus on taking the city bountiful so that the Lamanites can surround the Nephites on the south and the north and then attacking the center at Zarahemla is an example of grand strategy. This highest level involves a complete investment of all aspects of power from a given state. We are given small hints in the record about the use of trade, exploration, and missionary efforts to further societal goals in terms of security and national survival, as well as the use of violence to accomplish these national objectives. 
The word tactics will be used throughout the podcast, but not as a way of thinking about planning, preparing, or even the conduct of actions, but in the discussion of different evolutions of actions and preparations. For example, the tactic of using fortifications for military garrisons. As specific battles are discussed, it is the four levels of strategy that will be used to help place this specific battle in its appropriate context. It is also this framework that is followed to understand the importance of specific technological developments and added tactics and techniques of conflict. War is social and societally sanctioned violence. It requires a commitment from the whole of society. The larger the war, the greater the commitment from society. This is why there is a spectrum. A group of tribal fighters can launch a raid to capture some livestock. This doesn't need much planning or societal commitment. It is at the technical and maybe tactical level. To destroy an opposing civilization requires planning. It requires a strategy, a way that can lead to victory for your side or defeat for the other side. It requires complete commitment of the social resources from the entirety of the society. How can a battle be analyzed? Each of the engagements, battles, campaigns, and wars in the Book of Mormon will be looked at with a common methodology. I will provide information about the geography, the terrain, vegetation, and weather, as we know it, or the best guesses available. We will discuss the size of forces, the organization of the armies, and the leaders who made the key decisions. Who were they? What was their background? And why did they make the decisions that they did? We will set the context of the event by discussing each of the levels of conflict or strategy as just described. We will then evaluate the leaders and battles based off five criteria or principles of conflict. Identification, isolation, suppression, maneuver, and destruction. Identification is the ability to define and locate the opponent. Isolation is when the opponent is denied the ability to gain outside resources and assistance. Suppression is the process of denying the opponent the freedom of movement and maneuver. Maneuver is a combination of movement and firepower, either in a physical sense or a perceived sense, to achieve a position of advantage. Advantage means the placing of strength against an opponent's weakness. Once again, this may be in reality or in the opponent's perceptions. Destruction is the end of the enemy resistance through either physical destruction of resources or the destruction of the opponent's will. I want to discuss each of these criteria a bit more and describe subordinate elements as well. As a note, quite often these principles occur simultaneously rather than sequentially. The principle of identification is more than pointing out where the enemy is, or how large the enemy is, or even what weapons the enemy has. All of these are only one part of identification, the physical part. There is also conceptual, doctrinal, and cultural identification. Identification is first, as it is the foundation upon which all success is built. In fact, the greatest successes and defeats in military history have been as a result of mastery of this principle. 
Captain Moroni might have been a genius at understanding his opponent. Not only did he know what the opponent wanted to do, but he also seemed to know how the opponent would react to a given stimulus on the battlefield. He used spies to know where his opponent was, what he consisted of, how he wanted to fight, what he expected to see, what his motivations, strengths, and weaknesses were, and to what tactics he would revert in times of great battlefield stress. Physical identification has historically been the focus of gathering intelligence. It has proved easiest when the opponent was a force based on a similar conceptual, doctrinal, and cultural model. This occurs in the Book of Mormon when Lamanite armies face Nephite or Xenophite armies, but becomes more of a challenge when Gadianton robbers, the non-state actors of the Book of Mormon, fight against the Nephites. Conceptual identification is understanding how the enemy plans to fight or win. What is the enemy strategy? Most battles in the Book of Mormon start off in the open field, and then things change to being focused on cities. It changes again with the rise of the non-state Gadianton robbers. A minor change is seen when Moronihah seemed to be caught off guard as the Lamanites attacked straight for Zarahemla rather than continue their previous strategies of attacking cities on the periphery. Doctrinal identification is understanding how the enemy fights. What are the opponent's previous actions or methods of operation? This requires something like a mental or physical database of previous behaviors, techniques, and procedures. This is a sum total of prescribed and exhibited behaviors in conflict situations. This is neither simple nor fast, but over time the patterns can still be built. Doctrine is less obvious in the Book of Mormon. However, we will see that Amalekiah will change his army's behavior based off of observations of Nephite actions. He does very well in his doctrinal identification of Moroni's actions and city defenses. The most difficult of all the subcomponents is cultural identification. The difficulty of identifying cultural templates is that it requires cultural expertise, which is not gained quickly or without investment of resources and effort. In essence, what we should hope to achieve is an overlay of the cultural template of the opponent. Are they a culture based on obedience to the state or sovereign? Are they a tribal-based society? Are they a religiously motivated culture? If so, how does their religion shape their worldview and the concept of the law of war or just war? The view of following the will and mind of God used by Nephite commanders in several instances is a part of this religious worldview. This shapes who or what are legitimate targets and how the strategy can be shaped, specifically the use or development of a stratagem in the defense of the people and a righteous way of life. Only when the existing culture is properly and fully understood, rather than solely through an academic understanding, can someone be truly effective in identifying the nuances an opponent will use. More than one Book of Mormon author takes the time to describe Lamanite culture in a way as to cause the reader to think that it is rather different from Nephite culture, even after all of the Nephite dissenters who go from the Nephites to the Lamanites. The next principle or criteria is isolation. Isolation is to deny the opponent the benefits of outside support 
and has four subcomponents physical, emotional, communication, and financial. Physical isolation means to deny assistance from outside forces in terms of fires, maneuver, or logistical support. In Biblical and Book of Mormon periods, this was sometimes accomplished through the siege, where an entire city was surrounded and cut off from outside support. Emotional isolation is to cause the opponents to believe that they will not receive support. This is terribly important, as the ability to attack the will of an opponent is more critical than attacking him physically. We see this when Helaman writes his letter to Moroni in the latter half of the book of Alma, and he expresses his concern about the government providing necessary forces and provisions. He wonders if he and his armies are all alone in their fighting. We see numerous examples of Nephite or Lamanite armies fleeing defensible cities as they see what they perceive to be an insurmountable force approaching. Emotional isolation feeds off the notion that perception is reality. Communication isolation is what it sounds like, no communication with anyone outside the force. Often this precedes emotional isolation. The opponent must not be able to communicate their plight or receive any communication from the outside for emotional isolation to be truly effective. Communication in the Book of Mormon almost always seems to be through letter, though there are examples of spies reporting or of observation from towers. The final aspect of isolation is financial isolation. This could be viewed as a form of logistical isolation. This is especially true in the case of ancient warfare, where the finances of an army were really determined by the ability to provide food and water, and then later, loot. The ability to isolate an opponent through denying monetary and sustenance support, preventing the ability to express a message or receive supportive communication, thereby breaking their emotional will, is certain to result in a complete physical isolation from outside assistance. The third principle or criteria is suppression. Once the opponent has been identified and isolated, it is essential to deny him the ability to move and maneuver. This is the first element of suppression. The second element is to be able to establish a foundation for gaining the initiative. Initiative is not simply determined by who attacks first, but by who is able to adjust to the circumstances and place his opponent at a disadvantage and himself at an advantage. Numerous actions throughout the Book of Mormon show the power of surprising the opponent and thereby entirely preventing a battle or making it significantly easier. At the higher levels of strategy, the dynamic of suppression is embodied in preemption, where suppression and maneuver are combined. Preemption seeks to prevent enemy maneuver by attacking the opponent prior to their preparation for conflict. Preemption is an interesting aspect of Book of Mormon behavior. There are times when it seems to be flatly in violation of the Nephite law of war. There are other times when the use of a stratagem, as demonstrated at the Battle of Jershon in Alma chapter 43, might be perceived as a form of preemption. The next principle is maneuver. The purpose of maneuver is to achieve a position of advantage from which the enemy can be destroyed. The very definition leads one to a spatial rather than a holistic understanding of the concept. 
maneuver in the physical world is only one means to achieve the maneuver aim. The ancient Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu implies this when he says that the best commanders are able to win a battle without fighting. This cuts to the heart of perception being more important than reality. Most of the battles in history have not been simply mathematical formulae, but rather a contest of will and perception, where at some point one commander perceived either an advantage or disadvantage and subsequently made a series of poor decisions that eventually led to defeat. The real challenge of maneuver is first identifying what the position of advantage is. This is directly linked to understanding the opponent. Once a commander fully understands all aspects of his opponent, then he will be able to clearly identify what will give him advantage in both perception and reality. The final principle or criteria is destruction. A simplified standard of armed conflict in Western civilization has been physical destruction. Two armies faced off on a designated battlefield and then they fought. The one who controlled the field of battle at the end was the victor. In many ways, this is still a common Western and American view. Another view has been to target the will of the opponent. In the Book of Mormon, both forms of destruction are evident. Lamanites and Nephites surrender cities without engagements because their will is destroyed. Other times, large battles occur, and who occupies the battlefield at the end of the fighting determines who won or lost. I briefly want to digress and discuss when armies break. This is a fascinating topic and one that is not consistent across history. Sometimes armies have broken and run with only a very small percentage of casualties, but other times it has required much greater slaughter. One extreme is Japanese behavior on islands in the Pacific Ocean in World War II when they endured as many as 98 or even 100% casualties before the Allies could claim victory. That is an extreme that was driven by the nature and location of the fighting as well as the culture of the defenders. For the sake of the numbers in our discussion, we will assume that most armies break at about 25 to 50% killed. Armies will break with fewer casualties when they are surprised and may be willing to endure a great deal more casualties when defending a fixed position. Casualties include dead, wounded, and missing. The Book of Mormon occasionally addresses a number for wounded, but this is rare. Typically, I will distinguish between killed and casualties to make the numbers consistent. Great commanders, past, present, and future, have utilized and will utilize these five principles. Identification, isolation, suppression, maneuver, and destruction. And the effective use of them has meant the difference between success and failure on the battlefield and, at times, the difference between survival and extinction of cultures and civilizations. We will see the application of these principles among Nephite commanders of all periods and understand the failure of armies within the scope of these same principles. I will use these principles as a way to discuss and evaluate the conflict events throughout the Book of Mormon. 
I have tried to explain the five principles in such a way as to make them relevant throughout this study of Book of Mormon conflict so that listeners can apply that learning to current events and conflicts. They are applicable for understanding the actions of secret combinations in all periods and the actions of large, conventionally-minded armies. It is critical to understand that though destruction is the ultimate goal of every military engagement, battle, or war, it is not the first principle that must be applied. Only through a thorough understanding of the opponent in all four of the subcomponent areas will a commander be empowered to isolate, suppress, and understand the position of advantage and then gain it and finally destroy the opponent's will and, as necessary, physical material and fighters. Some basic terminology is necessary so that we have a common set of terms and a common word picture for each of these terms as they will be used throughout the discussions on battles to follow. I have already explained terms like engagement, battle, campaign, and war. I will add a few more that have already been mentioned and will continue to show up. Raid or raids. A raid is an attack with a purpose of capturing property or people. This is one of the earliest forms of armed conflict, as it does not require large numbers of personnel and equipment. A handful of people can conduct a raid. A raid has no intent of capturing and retaining control of land. Ambush or ambushes. This is an often mischaracterized term. An ambush is a planned attack on a moving force. Within this statement is the implication that an ambush is a surprise. Otherwise, the opponent would stop moving and begin to conduct battlefield maneuvers. As this word is used here, it is impossible to ambush a city or a defended position, even a camp. These attacks may be called surprise attacks, but not all surprise attacks are ambushes. Limhi conducts an ambush of the attacking Lamanite army as they move through the forest, for example, as does Tiancum of the Lamanite army moving toward the city Bountiful, or so I suppose. The nature of an ambush allows for maximum effectiveness by a small number as the opponent is not physically or emotionally prepared for battle. Open Field Battle or Battles this is a battle that occurs outside of existing fortifications. In general, the armies are on an equal footing in terms of defensive preparations at a collective level. Many battles in the Book of Mormon tend to be of this type, though we have few details on most. The Battle of Manti is an open field battle as the forces do not engage each other in mass within the woods or use pre-existing city fortifications. Despite this, Moroni does use the trees and city to conceal his forces, and he uses the rivers, streams, and existing terrain to maximum advantage. City defense. This term and the next are closely related. A city defense is relatively self-explanatory in that it is where one force uses existing city fortifications to aid in their defensive efforts. Siege or sieges. A siege is a protracted attempt to cause the capitulation of a city or fortification through either active or passive measures. Active siege techniques used in the Book of Mormon tend to be either direct assault or clandestine escalade to breach the city defenses. 
Passive measures are more common and involve the encirclement, blockade, and prevention of reinforcement or supply of the besieged city. The next three terms are words about which I try to make a conscious distinction as I believe that each represents a different kind of person who participates in armed conflict. Fighter. This is a person who participates in conflict regardless of purpose or reason. It could be a person conscripted or compelled to fight, or one who does so out of personal motivation. This is the most generic term of the three. Warrior. This is a person who participates in conflict because the native culture emphasizes conflict as valuable to the society. In short, a warrior fights because it is what warriors do. Soldier. This is a person who fights as a part of a bureaucratic society. There is an ethos, rules, laws, and guidelines behind actions. Soldiers are implements of the state, and they represent the state as an archetype of the state. There are few soldiers in the ancient or medieval world. The Roman legionnaires are an example of this professional fighter conducting themselves in accordance with state law and identity. In the Book of Mormon, most of those who participate in conflict are fighters. Enos and Mormon describe the Lamanites as bloodthirsty. Maybe this means that their culture valued war, and one could characterize them as warriors. Moroni and those who fought under the title of liberty might be characterized as soldiers. I will so characterize him and those who follow him in this category. Next, I want to provide some basic rules of ancient warfare. I think these are important for any discussion on the Book of Mormon, as so many people today understand war in a 21st or 20th century context. The rules, and by this I don't mean legal restrictions, of ancient warfare are very different. I provide seven rules. 1. You can only kill as far as you can reach. For trivia purposes, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command identified one of the key lessons from the 1973 Arab-Israeli War as, if you can see it, you can hit it, and if you can hit it, you can kill it. The it, in that case, was a tank. Think about this. It wasn't until 1973 that we believed that we could hit whatever we could see. That was not true in the ancient world. This is why an army can simply flee from another army and not fear destruction unless they are caught and brought within reach. This is also why arrows, slings, and spears are useful as they extended reach. By the way, note that Book of Mormon armies are not spear-based. More on that in later episodes. 2. A commander can only command that which he can control. This means that once all elements of an army are engaged, then there is little opportunity to alter the battle. In the ancient world, there are no radios or telephones. All messages had to be visual or auditory or hand-delivered. This rule will make some of the battles executed by Moroni seem rather amazing, as he had to first trust that Lehi or Tiancum would do exactly what they agreed to, because he could not verify that they were doing so until he actually saw it, and vice versa.
this rule will generate a recurring personal lesson from these battles. Be a person of integrity. Rule three, the contest of champions. The most famous scriptural example of this is the fight between David and Goliath. Many cultures started battles by having a contest of champions. Unlike Goliath's offer, these contests never decided the outcome of the overall battle. The champions fought to encourage their peers who watched. Ammon's fight at the waters of Sebus might be one such example. Maybe Tiancum, when he fought Morianton in Alma chapter 50, was a contest of champions. Rule 4. Wars were not necessarily for societal destruction. It is an unfortunate aspect of modern war that we tend to fight to the point of destroying societies or in pursuit of a form of genocide. That is not why ancient cultures fought. It was usually for domination and resources and not ideological, ethnic, or societal destruction. Rule 5. Campaign season. Think about weather and harvest. There are few examples in the ancient world of professional standing armies. The Book of Mormon may have some, but usually fighters were also farmers and society's resource providers. They needed to be back to bring in the harvest, and for that reason armies often limited their campaigning seasons. Weather always played a role in when armies fought, anciently even more so than it does today. 6. Open field battles are by mutual consent. Armies did not meet in an open field battle unless both sides wanted to. Helaman and his 2,000 sons is a great example in the Book of Mormon. If they didn't want to fight, then they could simply run away, refer back to Rule 1. This is especially true when both armies are moving solely at foot pace. 7. There is no battlefield medicine. Fighters wounded on the battlefield often died of disease or infection in the ancient world. The best organized ancient armies and most sophisticated ancient societies had healers or surgeons who would know how to sew a wound or what herbs might assist with healing, but this was about as good as it got. There was no medical facility. We will see one intriguing example of healing during the Xenophyte period, but that is a rare exception. We are told about wounded soldiers who recovered, but not how. I want to conclude this episode with a discussion on the general nature of ancient armed conflict. Specifics of how ancient Near Eastern and American armies fought will be discussed in the next several episodes. But now my goal is to express the general elements and nature of conflict in ancient times. The relevance of this discussion is important as the Book of Mormon is not written, nor do the stories occur within a sterile vacuum. The people live in a real world with other people, and the interaction of people and culture plays a role in shaping the way in which these people seek to solve their inter-societal problems. The relationship of the Book of Mormon military and political events to those of other cultures and regions 
is useful in perceiving the changes and developments within the pages of the book of Scripture. There are three primary elements in ancient armies, infantry, missile weapons and artillery, and mounted. As you will reflect on these three types of fighters, think about the basic and rudimentary reasons for each. Ancient battles were typically won through the clash and physical prowess of the infantry fighters of the competing armies, referred to here as a melee. It was in this crush of humanity that a battle was finally and definitively determined. These fighters would seek to literally cut their opponents to pieces and leave no opposing person alive on the battlefield. An infantryman can only kill out as far as his weapon can reach. Again, refer back to Rule 1. This was one reason for the use of extended melee weapons like the spear, to begin the process of causing death at the furthest range possible. It was probably determined through hunting that it was better to have a weapon that could be hurled faster than the human could run to finish a kill. This discovery of killing at ranges beyond one's reach was brought to the battlefield through a hurled spear or javelin. Even that added range was not sufficient as people sought mechanical assistance for killing at longer ranges. Again, hunting weapons and armed conflict weapons are similar in intent and design. In various regions and continents, different devices have been devised. The atlatl, which involves a mechanical assist in hurling a spear farther and faster, the use of a sling and stone, and the bow and arrow are common examples. As circumstances and experience required, armies evolved missile and melee weapons peculiar to a siege. Battering rams and multiple-person missile weapons were used to breach and support the assault on a city's walls. As the range of causing death evolved into a variety of techniques and distances, it became more and more important for an opponent to cross the area between the range of the missile weapons and the melee as quickly as possible. It was also desirable to be able to attack an opponent from directions he did not expect. It was possible for an opponent to react to human movement to the side or to the rear, but if a person could move faster than a human, then he would be better protected from the barrage of missiles and better able to reach a position of advantage. This involved the use of animal-powered locomotion. It is suggested that ancient armies, particularly in the Near East, used chariots or war carts first and then evolved into the use of a single man on a single horse as an effective human platform. This evolution of a mounted arm from cart to chariot to horse cavalry was well advanced when Lehi left Jerusalem. All three types of fighters are common in the armies in and around Jerusalem in Lehi's day. Melee, missile, and mounted weapons each were used with a combined impact greater than the sum of the parts. As will be discussed in the next several episodes, the armies of the time had evolved to a significant level of sophistication in the use of each of these types, and much of that information exists within the stories in the Old Testament, and were certain to be present in the brass plates that Lehi brought with him from Jerusalem. 
it is intriguing to note that there are items common in Lehi's day that do not get transferred to the New World. At no time does any Book of Mormon author refer to mounted warfare in any form. There is no reference to siege machines of any type either. These are intriguing gaps in the manner of fighting that will receive later discussion. Combining infantry, projectile weapons, and mounted forces into engagements, battles, campaigns, and wars that use stratagems, tactics, and strategy at a variety of levels is what makes armed conflict. We have had a brief introduction to these terms and concepts. Now we are ready to discuss specific battles and armies. Nephi and his father, Lehi, brought with them an understanding of ancient warfare from personal experience and from observation through the written scriptural record and through watching the armies of the day. The next episode will address what they knew from the Near East. The following one will address what was learned from the assumed journey through the Arabian Peninsula. The third in this sequence addresses some elements that may have been learned from the New World. Until next time.